pastors here at GCF. At GCF, we love books. I love books because I love to be happy. And I know that the more that I know about God and God's ways, the more capacity I have to be happy in God. With that in mind, uh, there's five new books in the bookstore I want to quickly mention. Uh, The first is this book by Tim Keller. By the way, we sell all these books at a loss. We don't make money on these books. We just want you to have them at a great price. Um, Tim Keller's newest book is called Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? If you're struggling with bitterness or unforgiveness, fantastic book to check out. Um, Next uh, is this book by John Piper. It's a brand new book. It's called Come Lord Jesus, Meditations on the Second Coming of Christ. If you've had questions about the rapture and the timing of Christ's coming, John Piper answers those questions and many others in this brand new book. It looks superb. I've just read parts of it. Um, And then this book um, I'm really excited about. It's by a husband-wife team, Andreas and Margaret Kostenberger, both world-class New Testament scholars. This book is called God's Design for Men and Women, a Biblical Theological Survey. It's It's a thick book, but basically they look at what the whole Bible says about the role of men and women in the home of the church, starting in Genesis, ending in Revelation. It's a it's a biblical theological look at that crucial topic by a fantastic husband-wife team, great writers, great scholars. Uh, and then uh, another one, um, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. This, this book literally is a 20th century classic. Uh, if you haven't read it, repent and go buy it and read it. Um, this, this is many people's favorite book all time besides the Bible. It's a beautiful book of Christian theology uh, written very, very uh, beautifully. And then finally, um, this is not hyperbole, but this book is, is becoming, I would put it on my top five list all time. Uh, it's, it's by John Piper. It's called 27 Servants of Sovereign Joy. It's 27 biographies on great saints in the past. Uh, and I love the way that he writes history. Uh, they're, they're short biographies, but he writes with passion and purpose. So you're, you're learning theology. You're getting inspired by godly examples. You're learning about courage and the importance of theology. So, fantastic book. Um, it's thick, uh, but it's, it's worth reading through. So, five new books. Um, grab those afterwards and read them. You'll be glad. With that in mind, uh, let, me, let me pray and ask for God's blessing as the Word is preached this morning. Father, we do thank you for giving us uh, so many good books, but we're most thankful for the Bible, the only inspired, inerrant book. Father, we pray now that as we look at the contents of the Bible, that you would reveal yourself to us. We are in desperate need of understanding. Father, we we don't just want to understand this text, but we also want to apply it, and we want to worship you as a result of this text. So we pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to the truths of uh, John 13. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few months ago, we attended the annual Farley Family Christmas dinner extravaganza at my aunt's house up on the South Hill. It was an incredible feast. The spread was amazing. Ham, lamb, those cheesy broccoli casserole dish things. You know what I'm talking about, the cheesy broccoli thing? Can I get an amen? One amen, okay. Um, 
homemade breads, mac and cheese, and so much more. Tons of dishes. After the main course, there was a dazzling display of desserts, cookies, fudge, pie, ice cream, drinks. My aunt fed around 30 people that evening. It was a massive labor of love for her to provide all that food for so many people. And after dinner, as you can imagine, nearly every square inch of her counter and islands and kitchen table was covered in dirty dishes, piles and piles of dirty dishes. And while everyone was swapping stories and laughing and eating dessert, uh, in the living room, my wife noticed that my aunt was in the kitchen all by herself. While everyone else was out in the other room laughing and having a good time, she was all by herself in the kitchen, attacking that massive pile of dirty dishes. She was engaged in humble service. She was doing the thing that no one else wanted to do. She was back in the kitchen, getting her hands dirty, cleaning up after everyone else's mess. Now, every Christian is called to a lifestyle of humble, lowly service, as displayed by my aunt that evening. But here's the problem. Most of us, myself included, love to serve ourselves first and foremost. We're really, really good at looking out for our own interests. We're really, really good at self-care, a modern 21st century American term. We're really, really good at making sure that the talent stays happy, right? Or is it just me? We're all selfish. We're all proud. We all struggle to serve others. But Jesus, in John 13, not only exemplifies, but he calls all of us to this lifestyle of humble, lowly service. A great lifestyle, the lifestyle of the kingdom. This is the lifestyle that God promises to bless. So how in the world are you and I going to engage in this lifestyle of humble service? By looking at four aspects of humble service from John 13, 1 to 17, a very famous story, a beautiful story, and this story captures four aspects of humble service. So we have the model of humble service, the meaning of humble service, the mandate of humble service, and the motive of humble service. So first is the model of humble service. Who is the model of humble service? Surprise, surprise, the answer is Jesus. He is the model par excellence of what it means for you and I to humbly serve those around us. Look with me at verses 1 to 5 of John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let me provide some brief context for this story. This is Christ's last meal with his disciples before he is betrayed, arrested, crucified, and resurrected. He's in a place that we refer now to to as the upper room. In fact, the next five chapters in the Gospel of John are going to unpack Christ's teaching to his disciples in the upper room. Uh, John 14 to 17 is called the Upper Room Discourse. So we're going to spend a lot of time with Christ in this upper room. But the first thing he does is humbly serve his disciples. Verse 2, during supper, 
when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So picture the scene. Jesus and his 12 disciples are all reclining around a large table. Jesus gets up, takes off his outer robe, and then he wraps a towel around his waist, which was the clothing or the posture or the look of a servant. And then he grabs a large jar of water and a towel, and he walks around the room and kneels over, and he cleans the dirty, nasty feet of each of the disciples, and then he dries their feet with a towel. Now, why in the world was he doing this? What is the context? Well, there's an important context here. People in this culture often walk down dusty, dry, muddy roads and open-toed sandals, and often those roads were covered in animal excrement. So when most people arrived at their destination, their feet were nasty, dirty, muddy, smelly, sometimes had drops of animal excrement on them. And so a good, wise, gracious host would provide a large basin of water and a towel. Now here's the thing. Most people did not wash their own feet. This job was reserved for the humblest, lowliest slaves of the household. In fact, some Jews even insisted that Jewish slaves should not be required to wash anyone's feet. This was the job reserved for those Gentile slaves, not the Jewish slaves. This was a menial, dirty task. Now, consider this context. Consider who we're talking about here. When Jesus, the King of kings, Lord of lords, maker and sustainer of all things, when he took off his outer garment and wrapped a towel around his waist and served the disciples in this way, they were shocked. And they should have been shocked. And you and I should be shocked. We've heard this story before, so it's kind of lost its shocking power. But this was a shocking scenario. Consider who is doing the washing for a moment. Consider whose hands are rubbing mud, dirt, dirt, sweat, and animal excrement off the feet of the 12 rebellious, proud, uneducated mortals who will live a very short life on an inconceivably small, pale blue dot in a vast cosmos. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is cleaning the feet of these mortals. The same hands that flung billions of galaxies into existence. The same hands that are currently able to work all things for our good and God's glory. The same hands that will in a moment be pierced with nails. Those are the hands that are washing the disciples' feet, washing away the dirt, sweat, and mud. Christ is the model of humble service. Nothing was below him. Nothing. As a result, as his followers, nothing should be below us. In 1878, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, 
an organization designed to win souls for Jesus Christ. Now, their weapons were not guns and bullets, as many of you know. Their weapons were love and prayer and acts of service. William Booth cast a very compelling vision for people around the world to join his Salvation Army. He was a wonderful leader. He was an excellent communicator. And he compelled many from all over the globe to come join his army, which started in the U.K., One man, who had once dreamed of becoming a bishop in his denomination, left America, crossed the Atlantic, and joined William Booth in the Salvation Army. He was a Methodist minister by the name of Samuel Logan Brengel, and he served a large, prestigious church here in America. At his home church, he was well-respected, highly esteemed, and loved. Now, William Booth accepted Brengel's service very reluctantly at first. Booth said to Brengel, you've been your own boss for far too long. To instill humility into Brengel, he said to Brengel, Brengel, I need you to clean the boots of all the trainees. Now, keep in mind, Brengel was a well-respected, well-educated pastor who had a large church, who left all that behind to serve the Salvation Army. And now he's being asked to clean the boots of the new, young, fresh recruits. Brengel said to himself, have I traveled all the way across the Atlantic to clean boots? And then, as in a vision, he saw Jesus bending over the feet of uneducated fishermen. Lord, he whispered, You washed their feet, I can clean these boots. And this must be the attitude of every Christian. No matter how successful or wealthy or godly you are, or I am, nothing, nothing should be below us. Christ is the model of humble service. But what does this service mean? This brings us to the second point. So first, the model of humble service, and second is the meaning of humble service. What does this service symbolize or illustrate or picture or mean? Well, it's a glorious picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verses 6 to 11. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, that is, after the cross and the resurrection, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, Peter, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, how do we know that Jesus is talking here about more than the act of foot washing? How do we know? Said another way, how do we know that his humble service here is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, there's a few clues in the text. In verse 8, Jesus says, if I do not wash you, Peter, he's not talking about his feet anymore. 
He says, if I do not wash you, Peter, you have no share with me. He's saying, Peter, if I don't eventually cleanse you from the stain of sin, you have no share with me. And he's saying to all of us this morning, if I don't cleanse you with my shed blood, you have no share with me ever. Then in verse 10 and 11, Jesus says, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, he just washed everyone's feet, including Judas. But then he says, not all of you are clean. So clearly, Jesus is not talking anymore about dirty feet because he just cleaned Judas's feet. He's talking here again about him cleansing us from the stain of sin. Look at verse 10 again. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. All Christians have the stain of all their sins completely removed the moment they trust Christ. And John says the same thing in his epistle 1 John 1 to 7, he says this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And that word in the Greek, all, means all. All sin, past sin, present sin, future sins, Sins of thought, sins of word, sins of deed, all those sins were cleansed, removed the moment you trusted in Jesus. But Dave, I've done some pretty awful things in my day. We're talking about the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He removes all your sins, all of them. And then it gets even better. He clothes you in his robes of righteousness, which means it is currently impossible for you to be any more righteous than you already are because as a Christian, you are as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. Wow. When God looks at you, he sees you and me covered in the perfect robes of Christ's righteousness. Christ's blood is the most powerful detergent ever invented. It removes the stain of every single sin. Now, I know some of you here are thinking, again, Dave, what about that sin I committed all those years ago? That awful thing that I did that no one but you knows about God. Is even that sin removed? Yes, And that's because when Christ died, if you're a Christian, you died with him. You died in him. You were united to him mystically by the power of the Holy Spirit, which means that when Christ paid the penalty for sins, you paid the penalty for sins as well. In him, all sin was paid for. All the guilt of all your sin was removed with all the shame that goes with it. Which is why one hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it 
white as snow. Now, with that great news in mind, verse 10 needs further explanation. Let's look at it again. It's a little tricky. Jesus said to him, verse 10, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. If we're cleansed entirely, then why does Jesus mention that our feet still need to be cleansed? Jesus is using a metaphor or an illustration here to make the point that when you and I are converted, the moment we become Christians, the stain of all of our sin is removed. We can't be reconverted once we are already converted. All of the shame and guilt is removed. But with that said, no one is perfect except for Jesus. We still sin. But what is needed? Another bath? No, you've already been cleansed. What is needed is a lifestyle of repentance, ongoing repentance. Have you ever wondered why Christians need to keep repenting of their sins? If God's removed the stain of all my sins, past, present, and future, then why should I keep repenting? Here's the reason. Although you can never, ever, ever lose your status as an adopted, justified, forgiven child of God, period, when you sin against God, you are rupturing that relationship with God. You're still his child. He still loves you. But until you repent of that sin and get re-reconciled to God, he's going to discipline you. You're going to experience his fatherly displeasure. Yes, he loves you, but you're not going to experience the warmth and vibrancy of that relationship with him until you turn away from that sin through repentance. I love how the Westminster Confession of Faith says this. This was written by a bunch of Presbyterians in the 1640s, and it summarizes this really, really well, this idea, the importance of repentance for Christians. It says this, God doth, that's does, God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. Praise God. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, again, praise God, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure. He still loves you, but you can displease him with your sin. Fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. Very well stated. Let me ask you a few questions. Have you asked Christ to cleanse you? This is the hardest thing for us to do. This was hard for Peter to do because so often we don't see our need to be cleansed. But you have to humble yourself and say, God, I admit I need cleansing. I'm a sinner. Would you please cleanse me? If Christ has cleansed you, you are clean. You are forgiven. You're a child of God. But if you are holding on to a secret sin, there's unrepented sin in your life, you're going to experience your father's displeasure. He will discipline you because he loves you. And he wants to restore that relationship with you. So go to him and repent. He's eager to forgive and forgive and forgive. Next question. Are you currently living under the shadow 
of condemnation. Remember, if you're a Christian, Christ has cleansed you. That's an objective fact. But Dave, I don't feel forgiven often. Ignore your feelings. They come and go. Rely on the objective truths of Scripture. In the gospel, you are cleansed, you are forgiven. The moment you trust in Jesus, nothing can change that. We have to often remind ourselves of the objective realities of the gospel and ignore our subjective feelings. Feelings are good. Hopefully your feelings will grow. But our feelings aren't always there, are they? When they're not there, we have to rely on objective truth. Christ's humble service is not only a picture of the gospel. It is also an example we must follow, which brings us to the third point. First, the model of humble service. Second, the meaning of humble service. And third is the mandate of humble service. Look with me at John 13, verses 12 to 17. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet... And put, on, and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to, ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus Christ is commanding his followers to engage in humble service. And then he says, by the way, if you humbly serve others, you will be blessed. Don't we want God's blessing? He's not saying you're going to earn more righteousness, but he is saying you'll be blessed. You'll experience happiness and joy as you engage in humble, lowly service. Now, what might this look like, this humble, lowly service, the ministry of the basin and the towel? What does this look like for you and I? Well, I heard a story last week of a, an, an older member of our church, a single lady, who's new to the church, and she was going to move that weekend. And she mentioned in passing to someone here that she was going to move the following weekend. And the person said, well, I'd love to help. I, I, she, he didn't know this person really at all, but he said, I'd love to help, and I'll bring my boys. So that Saturday showed up with a truck and a couple of his boys, and they helped this lady move, a complete stranger. That's humble, lowly service. I'm aware of someone else in the church who recently offered to uh, watch several small children uh, to give a mom and a dad a much-needed break. They watch the kids all weekend. That's humble, lowly service. What else might this look like? It may mean driving aging relatives around town on errands, even when they're unthankful. It may mean taking care of family members with ailing health or allowing someone to live with you. My parents, throughout my childhood, always had someone living in our home. Whether it was a, a needy single lady or a needy couple, there was always someone living in our house. 
Or it could mean serving a child that needs extra help in a particular area of struggle. Or inviting that new kid at youth group to sit with you and your cool friends. Or cleaning the house after a large dinner party. Or cleaning up after a sick child. Or taking that shift at work that no one else wants. Young moms, you are to be commended for the way that you serve. Young moms are the unsung heroes of our culture. Changing diapers, doing laundry, washing dishes, spanking. Yes, we believe that spanking's in the Bible. It's mentioned at least seven times in the book of Proverbs. And it needs to be couched in affection and love, but it's in the Bible. These young moms are often reading the same story to their child for the 437th time. No one's thanking them. No one's applauding them. They are serving humbly behind the scenes with little gratitude. Husbands, have you considered watching the kids so that your wife can get away on a Saturday afternoon? Go to the club and work out or go to Starbucks and read a book? Have you asked your wife, wife, how do you feel most served by me? I asked my wife that question this week, and her answer surprised me. She said, Dave, I feel most served when you go out and play tennis. No, she didn't say that. <laughs> she said, Dave, I feel most served by you when you manage and discipline the boys. We have five boys in our family. Ask your wife. Wife, how do you feel most served by me? It's kind of a scary question, but you should ask it if you love your wife and you want to follow Christ's example. Singles. You can serve in the youth ministry, teach Sunday school, do some yard work for a widow or an elderly couple, children in the home. Shock your parents and siblings by routinely asking them with a joyful attitude, how can I serve you today? Remember, we have no grounds for ever saying, I'm too good to do that, or that's below me when Christ is the model, the maker of all things, took the lowest place. Or, I'm not going to serve that person because that person is a jerk who's going to betray me. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, and he still bent over and washed his nasty feet. Now, this type of humble service seems impossible. So what's going to motivate us to serve like this? That brings us to the last point. First, the model of humble service. Second, the meaning of humble service. Third, the mandate for humble service. And fourth and finally, the motive of humble service. What motivates humble service? Answer, Christ's love. Again, look with me at John 13, verses 8 to 10. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Not only. Does Christ wash the disciples' feet? He did something far greater. He humbled himself even lower. He went to the cross. 
and through his death, he washed the stain of all of their sins. He made them completely clean. One scholar says this, that night, Jesus stripped down and washed the dirt from the disciples' feet with his own hands. The next day, he was stripped again, and those same hands were nailed to a cross in order to wash sin from the disciples' souls. The cross of Christ is by far the greatest act of lowly service imaginable. And the one who did it was the Son of God, the maker of all things. And he humbled himself and served you and I because he loves us. And on the cross, Jesus died for individual sinners. If you're a Christian, he had your name in mind and your sins in mind. He loves you as an individual. He suffered and died for you to cleanse you as an act of extravagant love. And because he has cleansed us, we know he loves us. And love is by far the greatest motive for godliness. Which is why, by the way, it's so important for you and I to preach the gospel to ourselves. Because when we do that, we're reminded of God's extravagant love for us. And when we're aware of God's love for us, it makes us want to love him in return. And how we love him in return, we obey his commands. His commands are not burdensome. When we obey this command, Jesus promises to bless us. Because he's cleansed us, we can be assured that he will forgive us again and again and again when we fail to serve others as we should. And I'm telling you, studying this sermon, this passage all week was incredibly convicting because I don't live this way all the time. But I'm so thankful that Christ's cleansing blood applies to me and to you when we don't serve. Because he's already cleansed us, we don't serve to get him to love us more. He's already proved that he loves us by cleansing us in the first place. And because he's cleansed us, He has made us vessels worthy or fit to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit, which means he has given us not only cleansing, but power. We have everything we need this week, if we're Christians, to engage in humble, lowly service. He cleanses us, then he empowers us by his Spirit. But we have to stop and say, God, would you please help me? in this moment of weakness, to serve my wife, my child, my coworkers, my roommates, my parents, whoever. God loves to answer that prayer. And because of his cleansing power, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Henry Nouwen taught at Harvard Divinity School, a very well-respected institution, but not exactly a bastion of evangelical orthodoxy. At the height of his academic career, he shocked the academic world and his Harvard uh, colleagues by resigning from his position at Harvard Divinity School. And he resigned to go serve at the Lay Arch community in Canada. The Lay Arch community was a community for severely handicapped adults. Everyone who knew him thought he was crazy. 
at large community, no one knew or cared about his academic credentials, Harvard Divinity School, or his numerous publications. At Harvard, he was esteemed by everyone. At large, he was yelled at by the residents when he brought the mashed potatoes out too slowly. They never called him doctor, interrupted his lectures all the time with dumb questions, and they demanded to be served. Yet he volunteered for this position. This new job was a dirty, thankless job. No earthly praise, no academic praise. It was humble service. So why? Why did he resign his post at Harvard to go help severely handicapped adults who were thankless? Why did he volunteer for that dirty job? Because he knew that Jesus Christ volunteered for the ultimate dirty job. The dirty job of dying on the cross to remove the stain of all of our sins. Christ is the model. He's the Savior and He's the model. And Henry Nouwen knew that if Christ loved him in that way, then he's called to love others in that way. Here's the deal. You and I treat others the way that we think that God has treated us. And when we fully understand how much God has served us, we will in turn love and serve those around us, no matter how low and dirty the job is. Let's pray together.